You're listening to the Medical School HQ podcast online at medicalschoolhq.net. Session number 11. Hello and welcome back to another excellent session here at the Medical School HQ podcast. I am your host, Ryan Gray, and we are the podcast about medical school. From the pre-med process through residency, we hope to take your knowledge of becoming a physician to the next level. Today, I have another excellent interview for you. Some of you may have read our post at medicalschoolhq.net about the 55-year-old third-year medical student. I have Kate today in our interview, and she goes a little bit more in-depth about her process and her path to becoming a physician. She started out in the world of nursing and along the way uh, decided to go back to medical school. A lot of what we talked about you might want to look up later. I'll have everything in the show notes at medicalschoolhq.net slash session 11 so you can go there after you listen and uh, check out all the links to everything. Kate begins by telling us where she is on her path to becoming a physician. All right. Well, currently I'm um, a third year student um, at uh, WVSOM, which is osteopathic medical school. And I'm doing, uh, so I'm on rotations and um, our school has uh, a statewide campus, so it has a variety of different locations, and I'm in a rural site um, so that I can do the majority of my rotations uh, at, at a rural location because that's uh, my interest is rural family practice. And why is that? Why is that? Oh, geez. Well, partly I think probably because I grew up uh, on eight acres out in the woods, uh, live, lived uh, in rural locations a lot of my life. And so I want to practice where I'd like to live, which is somewhere rural. And um, before going to medical school, I was a nurse midwife and uh, worked at a National Health Service Corps site um, for my first uh, job, which was very rural Tennessee. Really fell in love with rural medicine at the time. It's... Um, uh, uh, you're more, I guess, a big fish in a little pond, but um, you really have an opportunity to impact the community that you're living in uh, in a lot of ways beyond just the patients that you're seeing, and that really appeals to me. So you just mentioned that you had a job before medical school. And yes. And you are a non-traditional medical student. Tell, tell that's everybody it. that's listening how old you are. I'm 56. I just turned 56. Wow. Happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so you're a 56-year-old third-year medical student. That's exactly right. Okay. So yes, the... I usually preface that by telling people I'm a glutton for punishment. <laughs> <laughs> that, and I find that amazing. I think um, when I was talking to Rich, the, the, mm-hmm. the guy from oldpremeds.org, right. he was talking about an article from Syracuse's medical school from Upstate about a 63-year-old, I believe, first-year really? student that they had first accepted. Year, 
gluttons. Oh my god. Yeah, so there there are more gluttons out there. <laughs> I feel for for him or her. <laughs> so so let's go back back to your high school and undergrad years. Okay. Were were you prior pre-med? Yes, I was. And what happened? <laughs> what happened? Um well, I'd say a number of things happened. I, I decided that I wanted to be a doctor when I was 10. And I never changed my mind until midway through college. So I was a biology pre-med major. And um, I picked the college I did because I heard that folks from there got into University of Maryland Med School, which was the one I wanted to go to, before grads from any other colleges. So, I mean, I was really it was really targeted. Um so a couple things happened. Uh, one was that I worked during the summer um, at University of Maryland uh, for my uncle, who re- was a research hematologist, and um, so I had a nice lab job, and I was interacting with some of the medical students in, in the hospital, and also I was in the hospital and, and seeing the roles a bit, and um, a couple things stood out to me. One was, at that time, it was a very adversarial program. Um, in that uh, very competitive program in that they graded on a curve and whoever had the lowest grade in the class, even if it was like an 85, failed. And so the students tended to sabotage one another because that <laughs> they, were, they were like ripping required articles out of the bound journals in the library so nobody else could get hold of them, uh, that sort of thing. I thought, well, this is just a toxic environment. This is horrible. So that was not, the medical school began to look less attractive to me, partly because of that. The other thing is I was in and out of the hospital, and what I saw was the doctors come in, read the chart, look at the labs, you know, write some orders and leave. They didn't seem to be doing anything. It was uh, a very short-term, um, you know, medical management, and the nurses were actually getting in there and, you know, turning to patients and changing dressings and doing hands-on things where you could see the result of your actions right away. And that appealed to me. I think I was sick of school and I wanted to be doing something practical where I would be working right away. So the thought of four more years of school and three years of residency, you know, it just, it was very overwhelming to me. I thought, you know, I think actually I'd rather be doing what the nurses are doing and um, and get in there and be doing it sooner. So I transferred um, after my uh, junior year of college, I transferred into the junior year of a nursing program. So I ended up getting a BSN five years uh, after I started school. Okay. So it was a combination of a toxic environment and a, a, <clears throat> a desire for some instant gratification with what you were doing. Right, right. Some hands-on instant gratification, see the result of your actions kind of thing. And probably... It, it you know I was thinking about raising kids too, and at the time I wasn't sure how I could do that and spend much time with children, uh, it, with medical school and all that. I I didn't know anybody who had done that, so I was thinking it was just you know postpone having children till you were much older, and so I would say that factored in there a lot. But frankly, I didn't know much about the whole process. I didn't realize that I would probably be applying to a bunch of different medical schools. 
I didn't realize that uh, it was possible to have a family and and do medical school. So so uh, I would say I pretty much had lacked a lot of research into the whole thing to begin with when I made my decision. But um, but in fact, nursing did suit me very well uh, for many years, and I di- and I do enjoy that um, uh, seeing the results of what you did with your hands right away. Okay, so you enjoyed nursing. Mm-hmm. Where did that itch come back to go back into medicine, uh, go back into the physician side of the house and go to medical school? Hmm. Well, um, obviously it was fairly gradual. Because <laughs> look at my age. <laughs> um, it wasn't like I dithered for 30 years. I was, you know, I was very much, you know, doing my nursing thing. Um, I was an ICU nurse uh, for 13 years, which is a lot longer than you pro- one should probably be an ICU nurse uh, because it's really stressful. Um, and then I switched gears and um, went to nurse midwifery school, so that was a huge, huge switch, and um, practiced as a nurse midwife and then started teaching nursing. And I would say it was while I was teaching nursing that things began to change. Um, I was very involved in the public health community in um, my town. Uh, I was uh, working one day a week at a free health clinic. I did that for five years. And um, I was teaching community health nursing. And so I placed my students into community health agencies all over the city and was visiting them there, uh, you know, observing them. So I really kind of got a, a big picture of... Um, all these different avenues of public health and the unmet need for primary care in um, uh, the country really jumps out at you if you're at all involved in in, uh, in public health. I was involved in a couple of projects that were going on, a pilot project in Virginia that was looking at alternatives to meet the need for uh, prenatal and maternity care in some communities where the hospitals had closed their units. And we had a very successful pilot project group, mainly because of the leadership of some physicians that were involved in that group. And um, so I began to see that that physicians could really be a huge um, instrument for change and for effective organization around a public health problem. And that without that physician, um, it just didn't go forward nearly as fast. I had had some uh, some attempts of things that I was trying to do in, in some uh, communities of need that just took years and years, and then I worked on this project. And when you had the doc working with you, you know, it just opened up a lot of doors. So that's really when I began thinking about being a physician myself. Um, and um, I, I knew I wanted to get more involved in family practice and taking care of the whole family and not just the woman, which is, uh, you know, my area prior to that. And instead of, and I don't think I would have been satisfied with becoming a family nurse practitioner because when you work as a nurse practitioner for many years, you begin to, I think, really get frustrated with taking care of only the common medical problems. You're aware that you've got a very encyclopedic knowledge of a lot of things but um, it's not detailed enough anywhere. It's like a mile wide and, and you know, only six inches deep. I just really wanted to know more and um, wanted to have that, that uh, 
background of knowledge if I was going to go into taking care of the whole family. So part of it was for practice and part of it was for uh, being involved in uh, in public health and being able to be an effective change agent. Okay. Those are all great it's reasons. It's a long, long answer. Sorry. A great answer. <laughs> so how old were you at this point? Um, 50. Okay. I was 50 when I decided to go back to medical school. Okay, 50 years old. Mm-hmm. Family? Um, at that point, my daughter had finished college, so my youngest. So, okay. yeah, I have two kids, but the, but they were both out of school at that point. Okay, grown and out of the house yes. and mm-hmm. yes. taking care of themselves. Right. Where did you start to begin researching what it would take to go back and get accepted into medical school? Um, I googled old pre-medical students <laughs> and I'm sure <laughs> and OPM popped up was the OPM website the old pre-meds website and um, so uh, so I started reading some articles and they were really that truthfully that was the very first thing I found um, and so the first thing I learned was that I needed to do my pre, uh, you know, what prerequisites I needed and, um, uh, you know, that I need to take the MCAT. And I had had some of them, I'd only had one semester of organic chem and one of physics. So I think I needed to retake those. And to my way of thinking, since I had taken biology and chemistry in 1975 and 19 yeah 19 both of them in 1975 that I really probably ought to do that over again as well (laughs) so I started looking for a place to take inorganic chemistry since I figured okay it's going to be two years one year for inorganic and one for organic so let's start with inorganic that's the first thing that was uh that was my first uh step was to try to register for for a course in chemistry okay did you reach out Besides Google and and the website, the oldpremeds.org website, did you reach out to any pre-med advisors? Um, No, I really wasn't aware of the existence of pre-med advisors. What I did do, though, interestingly, is talk to my uh, my family physicians because um, it's a large family practice that used to be part of a residency program, and so I knew they had had quite a bit of information on, you know, uh, medical education. And um, I had uh, uh, been uh, speaking with them for some years about a outreach prenatal project that I that I wanted them to back me up for. That they were very supportive. So, so I talked to those guys first and said, you know, I'm thinking about medical school. What can you tell me? You know. What are your suggestions? So I would say most of the advice I got was probably from uh, from my own doctor, who was actually very encouraging. Okay. Yeah, that's that's good. And I, I encourage a lot of people, uh, especially new people looking for shadowing opportunities, to go reach out to their doctor or maybe their parents' right. doctors. Yeah, I think that's a, a step number one, yes, because they you already have some relationship with them. Yep. Okay. So you reach out for a little bit of help. You start gathering some information and let's talk about your post-bac program. I think when some initial uh, dialogue that we had, you were trying to build your own post-bac program, uh, but, right. but had some difficulties with that, or why did you go the route of a, a structured post-bac? Well, um, 
uh, I went to the main university in my city to try to sign up for chemistry. And I registered as a non-curricular student. Um, and then you, uh, you sign up for classes after the regular students who are enrolled in a major at the university. Well, by that time, there were no openings in chemistry. And um, you can go the first day of class and try to get added, which I did. But, you know, I was behind the, the nursing majors and the bio majors and the chem majors. You know, that, that's a hot ticket um, course. And I simply couldn't get in. So, so one semester went by. And the next semester, the same thing happened. And I also uh, tried to get a chemistry class at every college in my city or in a reasonable driving distance, and I couldn't get into any chemistry class. Now, um, since then, I've heard the strategy of actually applying to the school as if you were going to do a second undergrad, and you don't have to complete that, but just being enrolled as a regular student, then you would be able to get into classes. I, I didn't think about that at the time, and um, so I was just frustrated. I'm like, I just simply can't get the classes I need. So I looked uh, online. There's the AAMC uh, website that tells you what where the postback um, programs are, and um, and looked at the ones in my state and applied to two of them. Okay. I also thought it was appealing. One of them lets you finish within one year. So I thought, okay, get all my classes in and be ready to apply. Okay. When you're doing this. I'm assuming from the sounds of it that you stopped working full-time? Um, only uh, when I started the post-bac program. That's when I stopped working. Okay. Yes. Okay. Was that scary? I was... <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, well, you know, for somebody like myself somewhat later in life who's probably been in debt for a while and worked hard to get out of debt, I, I was, you know, I had no debt. I was in a good financial situation. And I had to quit my job and move, actually, to go to the program that I, um, that I went to. And uh, so I had to figure out, you know, what am I going to live on for a year while I'm doing this? And it's very intensive. I thought I would be able to, to uh, do a little bit like teach classes or something um, uh, and work part-time. And, in fact, I, I was not able to work at all and be able to put the concentration I needed to into that program. So I borrowed money from a home equity loan. That's that's what I did. I took money out, and that's what I lived on for a year to do the post program and what paid for whatever of my tuition wasn't covered by uh, the federal loan that I took. So, yeah, very scary. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure many people, and post programs are becoming more and more popular there's mm -hmm. 140 of them now listed on the aamc website right and so i think many many career changers like yourself that's one of the big obstacles that they face is they have a steady job and they have to walk away from it to yeah pursue their passion of medicine and and it's it's encouraging and, and it's very courageous that you're able to do that and obviously successfully do that because now you're in medical school so well um you know it helps that i had it i had an asset i thought i was going to be able to sell my house and clear that debt but you know that's when the housing market fell <laughs> right after right after i uh, 
yeah, I got the second mortgage on my house there. So, um, so yeah, I still haven't sold that house, but, um, <laughs> uh, but in the in the global scheme of things, medical school itself is so expensive that the expense for a postback program and for that year is really probably the smallest expense towards the whole big goal that you're going to have. And when you realize I'm going to be borrowing scads of money anyway for medical school, you know, what's important is that you're able to clear enough time to do well, because if you don't do well in your postback classes, you're not going to get into medical school. So you, you just have to, you know, do whatever it takes to get those good grades during that program. Definitely. And for me, that was quitting. So. Yeah. Okay. While we're on money, mm-hmm. you did you look into um, scholarships or the, like the national health uh, scholarships for medical school? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> um, yes. Okay. Yes. In fact, that was my plan. Okay. Was to uh, I, w- I hoped for securing a National Health Service Corps scholarship. Okay. That's in fact how I went to midwifery school, and then I did two year you know at a payback site from that, and that so that was my hope for medical school. So I ha- I applied every year, and I have not gotten a National Health Corps scholarship. Um, my understanding I actually talked to some. Um, officials from there and uh, one of the things they look at is if you're from a disadvantaged background and if you get a federal scholarship to disadvantaged students um, that puts you in the highest category for getting this getting the scholarships okay I'm not in that category and the the uh, the majority of the scholarships that were um, given out were were within that category so uh, so that's something to think about. Um, uh, so I have Plan B, which is to do a um, loan repayment after after I get out, which is uh, l- less competitive, I guess. I'm more far more likely to get that. Okay. Because I am planning to practice in an underserved area anyway. So. Okay. And what's that? What's the loan repayment program? Who's that? The loan through? repayment program that is also. Um, well, there's uh, the National Health Service Corps loan repayment, which uh, pays um, $50,000 of your loan for every year that you spend in the uh, underserved area. You have to secure the job in the area at a qualified site, and then you apply for loan repayment. Um, there are also some state programs, which generally um, pay between twenty five and thirty thousand a year in loan repayments. So there are some different options out there. Okay, good. I'm I'm glad you're looking into that. I don't think I don't think enough people look into those programs that are available. Yeah, my preceptor for my first rotation this year um, is doing his uh, uh, loan repayment through the National Health Service Corps. You know, uh, at the I said I'm practicing in a rural site in West Virginia, so okay. uh, so his clinic uh, qualifies for that. Okay. So you're in your postback program, and you you take the MCAT at some point in that program, right? And you're starting to gather all your uh, materials for applying to medical school, right? What what was involved in your decision making? when you chose what schools you were applying to? 
Um, that's a great question. Uh, I initially picked six schools, and then the um, director at my postback program told me that wasn't enough schools to apply to that I need to find find five or six more to apply to, <laughs> and suggested I expand my criteria a little bit. Um, I knew I wanted to do uh, primary care and specifically rural primary care. So I was looking at um, uh, schools that had some emphasis in that area. And I also have an interest in uh, global medical uh, outreach. And um, so, for example, um, I looked at uh, um, Albert Einstein Medical School at Yeshiva University because they've got a global health center. I looked at uh, Tulane for the same reason, because of their, their uh, global medicine. Um, the other schools that I picked were schools that um, had uh, a focus on uh, rural primary care. Um, I also looked geographically because um, my family is a huge support system for me, both my, you know, my kids, my siblings, my, uh, my parents, and they're all, you know, in the Maryland, Virginia area. So I was looking for some place that was not too far remote from there. So I tended to stay on the East Coast. Um, because why put yourself in the most stressful situation you're ever going to be in in your life and move yourself away from your support system? That didn't seem to make a lot of sense. So um, tried to stay stay somewhat close to there. So those were those were uh, the main things I was um, I was looking at. I specifically picked osteopathic medical schools um, because. I was, uh, uh, there's an element of hands-on um, uh, emphasis in osteopathic medicine, which appealed to me. As you remember, that's kind of why I went to nursing instead of medicine. And so that sort of preserves my uh, uh, approach, I guess, um, to patients. I like the um, uh perspective, I guess, the philosophy of osteopathic medicine, and um, some of the main schools that emphasize rural primary care are, in fact, DO schools. Um, so, uh, not all of them, but many of them. So, I ended up picking um, uh, six osteopathic and six MD schools to apply to. Okay. When when you sit there and you, you click submit on your application, what's going through your head? Oh, geez. Well, I would say mainly a profound sense of relief that I finally finished <laughs> the application because it's rather laborious, as you yes. probably remember. It's it's very long. Um, but uh, uh, I think uh, the other thing is you're immediately wondering when you're going to hear something. It, it, it's, uh, you know, it, you know, it's not realistic to expect instant feedback, but you but you end up checking every day and <laughs> thinking, okay, somebody, when's somebody going to say something, you know, am I going to get a secondary, uh, that was, I didn't realize at the time that most schools send out a secondary application. So, uh, you know, so that was kind of a pleasant surprise that I kept getting these secondaries really quickly. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, but of course, you know, then it's the, the whole waiting game for, for whether you're going to be asked to interview. So, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, when I when I applied through the through the AMCAS application, which is the main application right. for allopathic medical schools, the it was the first year that it was an electronic application, and oh. it was a mess. 
<laughs> so, yeah, so I, I don't want to relive they those the days. They worked the tanks up before I got there, I think. <laughs> Hopefully, yeah. It was it was many days of repeating information, inputting information, because it would just delete all your stuff. It was fun. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, what... So you applied to 11, 12 schools, something like that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. How many interviews did you get? How many interviews did I get? Let me think. Um, uh, one... Uh, six. Wow. Outstanding. And a mix of MD and DO schools? Yes. Okay. Very good. That's a, a strong application. Thank you. What, during your interview trail, obviously, you're, you're the, the one sticking out. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, yeah. that's, that's not to say that you look funny, but... Yeah. <laughs> You, it's definitely not the same application as everybody else, that's correct. for sure. And yes. how do you think that affected both yourself on the interview trail and the people that were interviewing you? Um, I think that actually I may have gotten some of the interviews from people who were partly because they were like, who in the world is this? <laughs> I want I want to meet this crazy person. That's right. I want to, what in the world's going on with her? So, you know, I think it's always good if your if your application can raise some questions so they want to get you in to find out more. I actually think that's that's a workable strategy, particularly for non trads. Um, but uh, I would say um, for myself, uh, I was. I had kind of gotten over my apprehension about the fact that I was an older applicant. I was real nervous about that to begin with, but the director at my post-bac program um, talked to me about that some and really convinced me of um, you know what I, what I believe to be true, which is that you have a much richer narrative to bring uh, to the interview. And... Um, because you've had the opportunity to do things, and so there's just a great deal that you can talk about. Um, so I think on the whole, uh, it gave me um, some really strong things to to talk about in the interviews. Um, I think my age worked against me. At, there was one particular uh, interview where I felt that the, the three representatives from the school who talked to me all had a very positive uh, image, but I got the feeling that the admission committee had a very negative view on my my age, and I say that because I I saw a copy of my application, and they had my birth date circled on their Xerox copy with fifty two and three exclamation points after it. So I rather think somebody had some concerns about my age at that particular school. But uh, the interviews actually went very well at that school. And so I think it kind of got past that initial impression of, you know, what in the world is going on here. Okay. Very. I mean, I find that fascinating. And I think think it is, and I I brought this up, or or one of my other interviews uh, brought it up, Uh, on a previous podcast that it it is a little bit different for the interviewer to try to change their kind of questioning and, and and what they're trying to extrapolate from the, from the person that's interviewing, because it's not the, 
22-year-old fresh out of uh, or currently in undergraduate school that has pretty much the same path as everybody else. Right, right, right. So yeah. I'm sure they enjoy talking to people like yourself a little bit more because there's a little more adventure behind yeah, the story. It's funny because I got asked questions that had to do with my teaching experience in in nursing, uh, teaching in nursing schools, and uh, I almost got educator to educator type questions, you know, um, this is, this is sort of what our strategy, our teaching strategy is. And what do you think about that? And what, what sort of, sort of experiences do you have there? So, so that was, uh, that was a little different. I think, uh, just, um, uh, there was perhaps a more collegial footing, uh, from some of the, some of the interviewers. Good. On your your path to getting into medical school, what was, and maybe in medical school, what, what has been your biggest obstacle that you've had to overcome? God, there's so many. <laughs> uh, it's, it's difficult to, uh, to say. Um, I think, uh, I think that, um, in the path to getting to medical school and getting actually to the point of applying to medical school, the biggest obstacle was myself talking, talking myself out of it. Um, and, uh, um, I mean, I talked myself out of it when I was a pre-med major in college and, uh, for some good reasons. And, and, uh, there were, that was not a, not a terrible decision at the time, but when you approach this later in life, it's very easy to to tell yourself there's no way I have a chance. Or what if I commit all these resources? You know, quitting my job, putting myself in debt, uh, putting you know, giving up a year of my life to do the questions, uh, to do the prerequisites. Um, what if uh, this is just a pipe dream? So you can really talk yourself out of trying, and in fact, your chances are really good um, if you do the prereqs and do really well in your classes and get a decent score in the MCAT, your age is really not a huge barrier to getting in. That might have been the case, you know, 15 or 20 years ago, but that really isn't the case now. Um, so I think it's important not to talk yourself out of trying. So maintaining that uh, forward momentum and particularly when you run into an obstacle, you're not successful. Maybe, you know, maybe somebody reject, you know, somebody rejects your application or you don't get an interview at the school you wanted to get an interview at. Um, just, uh, uh, to maintain that forward momentum is probably the, uh, the hardest thing. And you've got to have a reserve of energy to just keep pushing. That's great advice. I think there's, there's, a ton of great information that you shared today. I want to end with just asking what your future plans are. I know you talked a little bit about it with the National Health uh, Service Corps, mm-hmm. um, but what what do you picture your ideal practicing situation is? Um, I see myself being, um, uh, you know, like Leonard McCoy, an old country doctor. No, um. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, practicing in uh, a little town, maybe in Appalachia, uh, Appalachia, pardon me, um, and uh, uh, being being the community provider. And I also see myself um, uh, doing uh, short-term medical outreach trips a couple times a year. 
um, in uh, in other countries. I've I've been on three so far, and that's uh, that's an interest I uh, expect to continue. But what you're doing in rural medicine is very like what you're doing in um, global outreach, in that you're practicing in a lower resource setting with uh, people that are uh, perhaps a lot needier and not getting. Um, maybe not getting regular care. Uh, it's just uh, a little more episodic, I guess. So I see myself uh, self doing that. Well, folks, that is Kate. Again, she is or has an amazing story deciding at 50 years old to go back to medical school. I think most people would uh, run and hide under a rock if they decided to do that. Obviously, she's had a lot of family support and a lot of courage along the way. I wanted to have her on today to show that anything is possible, and anybody can get into medical school. You just need to put in the work, put in the effort, and keep chugging along, and eventually you will get there. Whether you're straight out of undergrad or you're looking to change careers and and making that that leap into medicine, it can be done. And Kate demonstrates that. So that's Kate. Again, all the information that we talked about, you can find that at medicalschoolhq.net slash session 11. I'll have links to all the stuff we talked about, including the National Health Service Corps scholarship and everything else. I wanted to talk about a resource that I found recently online called One Minute Medical School. It's a great website that is a bunch of YouTube videos that are approximately one minute long, and it shows the creator writing on a whiteboard or a piece of paper, big piece of paper, about different aspects of medicine and medical school. So... Go check it out, oneminutemedicalschool.com. Again, I'll have that link in the show notes, medicalschoolhq.net slash session 11. As always, if you have any questions for us, feel free to call us at 617-410-6747, and you can give us some feedback over our voicemail line. I hope the information provided to you today will help better guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Make sure to join us next time here at the Medical School Headquarters. 